This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Of course, today is the part two of Dr. Ryan Cole's appearance here. Dr. Cole is a Mayo Clinic-trained, board-certified anatomic and clinical pathologist, a subsequent fellowship in dermatopathology and a PhD in immunology and virology, currently CEO of Cole Diagnostics. And uh, he has been, you know, one of the great sources of the path specimens upon which we have been tracking some of the some of the injuries, some of the injuries from COVID, some of the injuries from the vaccine, and trying to parse these things out. He has been at the front lines of it, and he has sort of been at the the center of the spokes in terms of having access to a ton of material. And he's here to report, give us an update today. So uh, you were very excited about the last time he was on. We were very excited to see him this time. Dr. Ryan Cole, right after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. And as always, we'll be watching you on the Restream and the Rumble Rants. We appreciate you all being here. Tomorrow, we're going to switch gears a little bit and do a little bit sort of, of economics. We had a big report from the Federal Reserve. And uh, we just thought it might be interesting to have a very, sort of a different point of view about uh, sort of, you know, homo economicus, which is, you know, does overlap with some of medicine to some, some extent. All right. So uh, Dr. Kelly Victory, of course, will be with her, us here in just a few moments. But let's go ahead and bring Dr. Ryan Cole in. Welcome, Dr. Hey, Dr. Cole. Dr. Thank Drew. you so much for being here again. Hey, great to be here again. Um, like last time, um, I didn't finish my PhD. I was an MD-PhD uh, candidate and uh, had my first baby on the way. So I did my immunology, virology research, and at that point, when the first baby. Uh, so I, I catch grief for everything. You know, I'm, I'm one of the favorite people to attack on the internet. So I just want to make make that clear. I am an MD, board certified. Absolutely. No, no. I appreciate that because I, I do not want to get that all wrong. We want to present our, you know, it's so, it's so, this is just a complete sidebar, but it's astonishing to me that people who claim to be experts in all kinds of fields, you never can find their training magically, or you're never clear what, what it is that they are, you know, how they're in a position to say the things they say, for instance. And uh, boy, I've noticed it over and over again when they, when the training is not right up front, there's a reason for it. Those of us that have had 
lots of training and lots of experience. We want to make it clear exactly what our training has been. And, you know, just, you know, because it's takes decades to do this stuff. And uh, we want you to know that's what we did to be able to have the judgment to talk about things we're talking about. All right. So let's talk about what we're talking about. Do me a favor, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Cole, and just sort of let's let's reset. If just in case there are people here who didn't see your last appearance, I, I don't want them to have to go necessarily back and listen again. So they certainly are willing to just where how you got into this, what you're seeing, and then now what you're seeing at the present moment. Certainly. So from the beginning of COVID, um, you know, having having an interest in virology and having an interest in all things pathology, uh, did a deep dive. Uh, was very familiar with coronaviruses from previous study, and so when along came the pandemic, I made sure that I was brushed up and knew what we were to expect or not expect, and went back to those original SARS-CoV-1 and MERS studies. And uh, when the pandemic hit here in the laboratory, we ramped up testing to serve our community, local hospitals. Uh, and made sure that we were uh, playing a pivotal part to help our community get through what was coming. And for early on, I, I was uh, a big skeptic of a, a program for you know injections, vaccines against coronaviruses, just understanding how coronaviruses mutate and whatnot. So I was I was highly concerned uh, there at the beginning, highly concerned about the experimental technology being used. The lipid nanoparticle plus a gene sequence had never been used uh, widespread on humanity before. So, you know, that that had kind of my my radar up uh, watching for what the effects might be. And certainly here in the laboratory over you know, COVID, we certainly saw certain patterns that presented themselves. And if anybody wants to go back, you and I discussed that a lot of COVID was clotting and endotheliitis, inflammation of the blood vessels. And so I was I was seeing, you know, some of that clotting under the microscope during the first year of the pandemic before the shots rolled out and certainly seeing more of it after they rolled out. And so that's that's part of what I've been doing is studying the different patterns in the laboratory. And what a pathologist does is we're the quality control of medicine. We look for patterns, changes in patterns, and that helps inform clinical medicine. And so uh, there are different techniques we use in the laboratory. Certainly there are basic things that we've been doing all along, looking at white blood cell counts and, and certain counts going down after COVID and most certainly going down after the injections as well. So uh, just basically following patterns and then trying to, in a voice of just scientific reason and, and trying to keep it reasonably down the middle, say, look, here are the patterns we're observing. We should be concerned about these. We should study these things. and and that's kind of where we are now. Uh, we've advanced in terms of how we can identify effects of the virus, effects of the vaccine, both within the human body, within the tissues, within the cells. And as I like to say, uh, the cells don't lie. They're objective. And the patterns that we see in those cells inform us even more, you know, what we've done right, what we've done wrong, and what we could do better in the future. And so that's basically what's brought us, you know, to where we are now. You and I covered a, a lot of uh, these different issues, and I'll, I'll present a few of the slides from the previous uh, presentation again today, just for those who didn't see it. And then we'll go over some newer findings that are, again, um, still becoming uh, very concerning. And, and hopefully, you know, not to alarm or scare anyone, but to simply give people an idea of what we do know, what we don't know, and at the end of the day, have hope for um, those who may be still suffering long COVID, those who may be suffering a vaccine injury, and, and find some of these pathways and mechanisms and pathology so we have answers to help people that are in those unfortunate scenarios.
the the question I keep asking is, you know, how do I'm trying to think in terms of rendering really informed consent to my patients that are younger? How do we understand? Uh, and what is your sense of the incidence of? Let's just take clotting, for instance. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure we should take one particular uh, pathology, but I, I can't think of a better way to frame this. Take co uh, clotting. What's COVID? What's vaccine? What's vaccine plus COVID? It's like how where, how do we adjust? How do we adjudicate the risks? Yeah, and and unfortunately, we've layered so many of, the, of those things societally on top of each other that uh, teasing those out from each other becomes a challenge because. Obviously, early on, even if you were COVID recovered, and a lot of people had COVID, didn't know they had it, and then were encouraged to get uh, a, a shot on top of their COVID recovery, their their natural COVID recovered immunity, which you know generally historically we don't do, and even Fauci in 2018 said, look, you know, the best uh, vaccination of all is recovery from a disease when he was talking about flu. So we know historically in immunology, the immune system does a fantastic job, especially if one is in decent health, normal vitamin D levels help maintain uh, memory responses in the immune system and whatnot. So to try to tease out, and it's interesting too, because if you go back and look at say some of the Moderna studies, if you got two shots and then ended up with COVID, your immune response was actually weakened and blunted in certain areas. Um, that was week 42 data out of the United Kingdom. So there, there are things that we've done that haven't been very scientific as we've gone along. And this has been a frustration for me is, you know, finding those cohorts that are pure, those that were unvaccinated, COVID recovered, and looking at their data sets and then comparing those to, and then, you know, we do have 30%, at least here in North America, that never got the shot. So we do have a fairly good uh, cohort here. Um, but then looking at those who had COVID, then got a shot, and then got COVID again, that that alters some of these patterns. And so there's not any one good percentage. Um, the clotting, I, 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 I really go back to the beginning of the pandemic. And in my mind, primarily, secondarily, tertiarily, COVID is a clotting disease. And and we can look, there was a large poll done that showed out of 100 Americans uh, post-injection, 15% ended up with a new chronic condition. So what that tells me, if we some year, two, three, five years from now have the data sets, we can genetically go back and say, okay, who was susceptible and why? Why did, why did the spike protein affect this subset of people so adversely compared to those who got things, uh, you know, got COVID or got a shot, had no problems? We don't have the answer. We have the technique. We have the means. Do we have the political will to put the finances into those areas? We spent plenty of money advertising uh, a new uh, modality, but those same billions of dollars should have gone into the research uh, at the same time and, and beforehand to understand what would happen from an immunologic basis, from a clotting basis, from a tissue basis, from all these uh, findings that we're seeing. So I think that's the big picture is, is it's muddy. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know you've been very focused on the spike protein and its effect on clotting and endothelial function. Uh, is there any, I, I, before I bring Dr. Victory in here, I want to know if you have any thoughts about the liquid nanoparticles and could they be a part of the problem as well? And have you have anything on that lately? I don't think we really talked about that last time. Not, not yeah, specifically. Yeah. Yeah, this is probably one of my biggest concerns of all is a lipid nanoparticle. These were designed to carry chemotherapeutic agents to the brain. So we know that they cross the blood brain barrier. We know lipid nanoparticles go everywhere. The 
biodistribution studies, and I know you had Dr. Bridal on from Canada, um, the biodistribution studies that were done out of Japan show how widespread this lipid nanoparticle is within the tissues. And so that's, that's a concern. Human cells were meant to make human proteins, not foreign proteins. So when this lipid nanoparticle carries a gene anywhere in the body, now those cells can express the protein that that gene codes for. So what we do know in retrospect now, the damage that the, the spike protein can, can cause, my biggest concern is the industry seems to think they have carte blanche going forward now with this new platform of a lipid nanoparticle and a gene sequence for RSV, for influenza, for you know whatever other pathogen. And the, and the problem therein is we don't have long-term safety studies um, usually a vaccine takes, you know, six, 10 plus years to bring to market because we want to see all those safety signals, tease them out and make sure it's safe. It doesn't matter if it's effective, if it's not safe. And so we had all these upfront claims of efficacy, even though th those were based on relative risk and not on absolute risk reduction. So the problem is we have a delivery platform that's never widespread been used in humanity. Uh, which had shown problems. The lipid nanoparticle in and of itself is very inflammatory. And, and those lipid nanoparticles, because they're positively charged, they'll fuse and intercalate into the cell membranes. And so when we studied these, we didn't study these in multiple dosages. Initially, studies on lipid nanoparticles were single dose. And that was the promise of it for inborn errors of metabolism, genetic disorders, and whatnot. You could quickly deliver... Uh, a gene for those missing genes in those kiddos or in certain conditions everywhere. Well, that's great for rare conditions, but for uh, vaccinal technology, that has implications when it goes to your liver, to your bone marrow, to your spleen, to your brain, to your heart, to every organ in the body, the adrenal glands, et cetera. And so to watch uh, with glee uh, the company, well, the companies are exp expressing glee, hey, look, we can use this for all these other um, types of pathogens, gosh, you know, the precautionary principle in my mind should take precedence here. It, it's really disturbing and concerning that, that the industry is, well, and they've kind of been given a green light by the regulatory agencies, unfortunately, when we don't have the safety data. And, and even to that point, these were authorized as though they were regular protein-based type vaccines and under the regulatory statutes of, of vaccines and not under gene-based products. And these are gene-based products and, and all those required studies that should be done, the reproductive toxicity, the mutation toxicity, the dose-dependent toxicity, et cetera, those weren't done. And so we, we have something being called a vaccine, but it's a gene-based product and that's highly concerning. Now, we also have a clotting update for us. Is that the PAI1 inhibitor? Is that part of that update? Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay. So, that, you know, you and I were kind of talking beforehand a little bit about going back to med school and remember, remembering all these clotting cascades. If I could have Caleb uh, jump real quickly to um, slide number 19. So when you clot, there's a lot of little factors that basically a waterfall, a cascade of events that have to happen to form a clot, which is great because if you have, you know, a scrape on the knee, you obviously want that to stop bleeding. You want a little natural Band-Aid from inside your body to patch things up so you don't ooze outside yourself. You, you basically want, you want a patch. 
Well, once a clot has formed, then the body has to break down that clot and kind of remodel that area as, as your scar starts to form, you start to heal. There are certain things that happen to have, have to happen um, sequentially as well for these clots to, to break down as well. And what we're finding, and, and I give Dr. Uh, Raisa Pretorius out of South Africa, you know, grand kudos. She's been on the leading edge of studying this with COVID, as well as from the injections. And so has uh, my colleague um, down in Alabama, Dr. Jordan Walker. So I borrowed his slide here. So this plasminogen activator inhibitor, if, if you have a gene mutation for this, now you're not able to properly break down those clots. And in addition, if you have a, uh, a gene, there's two, a 4G and a 5G, and you can either have one copy or two copies. And, and in these scenarios, if you have this plasminogen activator inhibitor deficiency, now you can't break down clots. And there's a subset of the population, yeah, bump to the next slide, um, Caleb, a subset of the population where, where it becomes concerning. You know, when you have these microclots and you can't break them down, now your oxygen can't get to your tissues properly. So ischemia is lack of oxygen to those tissues, uh, as well as hypoxia, which can lead to fatigue. Now, I, I wanna, right. Go ahead. And Go so, ahead. so one of the things, that one of the th couple things, uh, do, do you ever see a larger cascade in, in developing into a, a larger clot? And one of the, um, observations say on what's causing people to lose their sense of smell and whatnot and certainly what's probably still making the, my right ear ring is uh mm -hmm. microvascular changes in the cns and i'm wondering if those are clot based also so bigger clots yeah. and very tiny clots and are the microvascular microvasculitis or whatever it is is it primarily a clotting problem I think, yeah, again, this will go back to, you know, the previous show where you and I uh, hit on this. I think the primary process in COVID spike protein injury is an endotheliitis, the inflammation of those vessels. And once it's inflamed, once yeah. the vessel lining is inflamed, then you end up with these microclotting cascades. And so it, it's yeah. interesting societally prevalence of of this inhibitor you see it more in obesity you see it more in uh, diabetes obviously societally we have mm. a very metabolically unwell society a, a lot of insulin resistance within our society from you know our processed foods and and unhealthy I, I call it our sad our our standard American diet and around the world you know hopefully don't follow our example but but when you have those pre-existing conditions these kind of things do increase and i agree with you i think some of those sequelae some of those you know post-covid happenings yeah. post-injection things are because some people are it, forming microclots and not breaking them down yeah right and and so if you are one of those people with the i don't want to call it genetic deficiency it's really just a unique genetic profile around plasminogen activators uh, while in normal balance, it, they're they're okay. It's when something causes it to go out of balance that it really gets bad, right? Or something is happening Correct. systemically. But my question is, is there an association between that those genetic subtypes and what we're seeing in the cytokine system? Has anybody made that link? 
Yeah, and interestingly, so the the more adipose one carries on their body, um, you're already in a pre-inflamed state. So interleukin-6 is one of the inflammatory cytokines. So unfortunately, we saw the outcomes and the data outcomes, and that was the cohort that did the worst was uh, the but, increased. But is that adipose. linked to these? Is that linked to these same genetic yes. folks with their plasminogen? Yeah. 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 Okay. It is, and and not not just from a oh you've got a genetic disorder point of view, but rather these types of fact are affected by those metabolic factors. So you're absolutely right. You can change your gene expression profile based on your underlying health. So you change your underlying health and some of these activators will go back to more that balanced homeostasis. Got it. All right, Dr. Cole, let's do this. Let's take a little break. I want to bring uh, Dr. Victory in with us. She might have to leave us a little early, so I want to bring her in as quickly as possible here. So we'll take a little break. Uh, I'll also watch for your questions during that break on Restream, so put them up there or over on the Rumble Rants. And uh, we'll be back with Dr. Ryan Cole in just a moment. Not sure how to say I love you this Valentine's Day? Well, nothing says I love you more than a few minutes of relaxation, and GenuCell Skin Care does just that. Gives you the luxury gift of feeling like you spent the entire day in the spa, all while, in fact, in the comfort of your own home. Susan loves to feel pampered and special, especially on Valentine's Day, so why not relax with a detoxifying mask and feel amazing after only one use? I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to GenuCell, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. GenuCell's mask works wonders by pulling out all of your imperfections to make you feel refreshed and looking like you just stepped out of a facial appointment. Order the Dr. Drew package today and try this amazing mask for free. That's right. Every single Dr. Drew and Susan package includes a free mask to celebrate you and your loved one on this Valentine's Day. Go to GenuCell dot com slash drew and enter code drew for an extra 10 percent off your entire purchase plus all orders are upgraded to priority shipping for free that's genucel.com slash drew g-e-n-u-c-e-l.com slash d-r-e-w my guest is philip patrick he is a precious metal specialist trains at university of redlands he has spent years as a wealth manager at citigroup and his current position is with birch gold group so gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil, uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed and we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Hey there. How are you, Ryan? Great to see you. And uh, thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. Great to Am see I you again, Kelly. T terrific. Um, lots I want to talk to you about, but I think it bears repeating. Um, <laughs> do you want to join? <laughs> let's get to it. Sorry, guys. I was busy. <laughs> I was busy with the restream. I was answering so many questions. I got deeply into it. So they have lots of questions for you, Dr. Cole. So go ahead, Kelly. Sorry for not introducing you properly. That was a first. No, no. No worries. No worries. Um, there are things I think bear repeating, and one of which is that you and I have been uh, flying in the same circle since the beginning of this pandemic, and you were the one person who I knew who was really bringing some explanation from a pathology standpoint to the things we were seeing clinically. Uh, we knew we were seeing blood clots, but you were able to show why. We knew we were seeing increases in infertility, but you were able to show why. At a cellular level, at a you know, uh, by looking at these actual tissues, and I think it's critically important for people to understand that the things we are seeing clinically are being proven, are being explained in what you are seeing at the cellular level under the microscope, and that's really, really important. Um, one of the things I heard you say that I hadn't heard in our last conversation, and I think um, I want to make sure I understand it. You you believe that there is a genetic uh, predisposition or some genetic explanation for why some people are being harmed when others aren't. One of the things we've known from the beginning is that the um, adverse events, serious adverse events from these shots are not distributed homogeneously. Uh, they appear to be different based on, on uh, lots of the vaccines. So there's this whole, you know, how bad was my batch? And the fact that, you know, like 80 some percent of the really serious events seem to be associated with a relatively small percentage of the vaccine lots. So now I'm hearing a sort of a different take on this, that maybe there's a genetic predisposition in individuals to be harmed. So how have you figured out a way in your own mind to, to bring those two things together? That one appears to be variations in lots and the other appears to be an actual genetic predisposition to being injured? Uh, great question, and I think it's both. Um, before I jump in, uh, I, I want to answer from the previous segment. I said decrease in uh, PAA1. I meant increase in PAA1. So if anyone criticizes me on that, on this previous segment. Okay, <laughs> going to your question. Um, um, in the vaccine injury group, I agree, there may be a higher concentration. There's a wonderful group of uh, physicists out of Austria um, I, I got to present their data, and 
there's inconsistency within the batches, most certainly. Some have more polyethylene glycol, some have less. Some have more uh, lipid nanoparticles, some have less. Are there contaminants? You bet there are contaminants. So the consistency of production uh, may account for some of the injury that, that we are seeing. Now, we do know uh, genetically, and there was a, a really big study, I, I want to say it was a group out of Qatar that did some uh, in silico modeling of the affinity for the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor amongst different racial groups. So interestingly enough, there is a genetic predisposition as to where that spike will bind uh, depending on one's genetic makeup. So, you know, a small amount of spike uh, binding more strongly to some of those genetic groups will lead to, you know, more inflammatory outcomes. So we already know from an ACE2 receptor where that spike protein binds uh, point of view that that's actually uh, a, a shown factor. So I think it's a one-two punch. So number one, you get that affinity of binding. I think that's why certain cohorts did a little worse in terms of uh, COVID outcomes as well as uh, showing vaccine injury susceptibility. But in addition to that, uh, absolutely, the inconsistency, especially in the first couple of rounds. Now, I haven't been able to examine any of the bivalents or worked with any of the physicists on that. But I, I do think that both of them uh, play together in terms of those outcomes. And again, this is going to be something we're going to have to tease out. Uh, the key, the key to, to science, the, there, there's two things that make up a good doctor. Number one, you care. And number two, you're curious. And if, if you don't have that curiosity, we'll never answer these questions. And the only reason I've been doing this and putting my neck on the chopping block trying to share science is I care and I, I'll never stop being curious. That's, that's how we answer the questions. If we've done something that's harmed people, well, let's see if we can reverse that. If we want to understand who's most susceptible, then we need to study these things. There are databases and there are large university systems that should be able to get together and tease some of this data out. I'm an independent laboratory. I can't do all these things. And a lot of these things cost money. Um, everything I've done so far and I've presented so far has been out of my own back pocket just because I care. I, wanna, I want the scientific answers so that we can prevent future harms. Well, and, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, and this is what I've said from the beginning, that we have got to care about this. Um, fundamentally, these are things um, that, as you said previously, would have been sorted out, or many of these things would have been sorted out in the six to eight years that we normally take during the testing period for vaccines. There's a reason. Vaccinology is complicated stuff. I have said for a long time that the immune system is the last great frontier of medicine. Um, it is complicated stuff. The immune system doesn't always respond the way we think it's going to. And it's why many vaccines never make it out of the starting blocks. Uh, they fail and, and never get there. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And it sounds like it's you believe that it's probably uh, multifaceted, both some components that are genetic and some that are related to the uh, gross inconsistencies in batches. Now, back to these blood clots, too. One of the things we talked about uh, when you were on with us last was that the blood clots, in addition to being very you know, massive, um, they also included, if I recall, a fair amount of amyloid, something that is not in normal blood clots. Um, so let's talk about that. These aren't just, uh, for those people who might not have seen part one, that these blood clots are not typical in, in that way, not just the size and the locations and the frequency of them, but that they include some other components that you normally don't see in blood clots. 
Yeah, and this is a great point. I'm glad you bring it up. I'll have Caleb pull up slide number 15, if he would, please. Um, here on the left, you can see there's a, um, there we go. It, the criticism that that's bantied about is, well, gosh, you know, these are just postmortem and they're an, an incidental finding postmortem. And the and the clots you see on the right, yeah, those are postmortem clots. In fact, I have some spike stains coming here in about an hour from one of my technicians that will be looking at some of those with spike stains. But on the left, that was removed from a patient in vivo. I have other slides of patients that have like the entire bronchial tree, like it was cast. One was a pilot, the other was an internal medicine doc in Florida. And so these large clots, they're, they're unusual in the sense that they have a lot of proteinaceous deposition. And so if we go back to you know, the conversation uh, in the earlier segment with Dr. Drew, uh, some of this uh, clotting process is because excess proteins are being deposited and not broken down by the body. So if we uh, hop to the next slide, um, Caleb, here you can see spike protein within a lung vessel. This is Dr. Burkhardt's slide out of Germany. Um, I've been working with him and communicating with him. Just saw him at a great meeting in Stockholm where we uh, compared notes and are continuing to do these studies across the world together. So uh, here you can see spike protein in some of these clots. And if you go to the next slide, um, this is one from a patient that I just did. Uh, unfortunately, and this was a COVID patient, not a, not a vaccine patient, but here you can see the spike protein, all that little green glowing stuff, that's, that's a microamyloid deposition in capillaries within a heart. So the amyloid is depositing in vessel walls, and then some of these amyloid clots will piggyback and just basically like daisy chain onto each other. They just grow and grow and grow. And again, certain patients have the ability to break down clots and other patients are missing certain factors. And so it, it's, again, it's not known who is and who isn't. And sometimes we have to go on symptomatology. But here's what's interesting. If we jump to the next one, we now have in the laboratory, and there's only a handful of labs doing this, on the left, we can stain with a, a very simple stain called thioflavin, and it'll show clumped protein. So if I take just a simple tube of blood, you know, if you go to your, your doc, get a tube of uh, blood drawn, spin it down, take the serum off the top, and then we stain it with thioflavin. Now we can see protein clumps. Now we know which of these patients are forming microclots. And, and then on the right, this is a chart from Dr. Pretorius in South Africa, again, showing that even in the absence of platelets, if you just put the spike protein in, the proteins clump. So that spike protein induces clumping. Now, amyloid, the problem with amyloid is the body really doesn't have an easy way to break it down. Um, what uh, some of these docs are finding in their studies, if they put them on a, a triple anticoagulant therapy, uh, they're, they're finding a lot of these patients improve. I think you and I maybe hit on um, the enzyme natokinase when we were chatting last time, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is an enzyme that also has you know, fibrin breakdown effects. It's, it's a fibrinolytic. So uh, those who have uh, symptomatology and some of these patients, again, I'm not your doctor. This is just uh, educational. But um, as a supplement, some patients are, are finding that natokinase is improving some of their symptoms. Not only does it inhibit spike protein binding, or in one study showed some spike protein degradation ability, but also inhibits clotting as well. So amyloid is a very concerning finding. And a lot of these are just microfibrils, like that little green glowing dot we see on the left. But some of this can lead to macro clumping. And that's where I think we're seeing the formation of some of the larger clots. And I think, you know, long COVID and vaccine injury, it's not all the same pathway. Some of it's uh, 
mast cell activation and allergy activation. Others are reactivated virus. Um, I have a whole presentation I've done where the uh, doctor can go through and say, okay, here's the four primary pathways of, of uh, injury to explore. You know, obviously one pathway is the clotting that we're discussing. And then the mitochondrial harm is, is my another major concern I have. And mitochondria, they're the little engines that drive every cell in your body and produce energy. And we found in some studies around the world, mitochondria are inhibited by the spike protein, both, mm-hmm. both from mm-hmm. the infection and from the clot. So there's so many pathways, but I think clotting is one that should always be on the mind symptomatologically because you can do something about it. This is something, you know, we've been treating clotting for right. ages and when COVID COVID came along and in the hospitals, they were unwilling to you know, just use simple anticoagulants. It was somewhat perplexing. Well, this is a good segue because we're talking about the staining, um, Ryan. And one of the things that uh, I know we talked about last show, but is really, I think, critical is this concept that we have, you have at your at your um, hands, the differ- the ability to stain and differentiate between spike proteins that have occurred as a result of the virus. Uh, we know that some of these things, or some of these syndromes and some of these uh, complications occur in people who've had COVID and who have long COVID. But you are able to differentiate at the cellular level, at the tissue level, between spike proteins that occurred as the result of someone having COVID-19 versus spike proteins that were produced in response to the mRNA that they were injected with in the vaccines. This to me is a critically important issue because it really answers the question, well, does this person have myocarditis or does this person have inflammation of the the vessel wall because of these spike proteins? Where did those spike proteins come from? Did they come from that person having COVID the virus or did they come from receiving an mRNA injection that induced them to create those spike proteins? So talk about how that, how you make that differentiation. Certainly. I'll have Caleb jump to slide number three and I'm going to jump through a couple slides really quickly here, Caleb. Um, So when we got the shot, you see a superimposed needle. Again, Dr. Burkhart slide from Germany. And you see in the deltoid muscle, that's that spike protein being expressed. Now, we were told that it would stay in the arm. Plenty of studies now show that it doesn't. We'll go to the next slide. This uh, study was done by Dr. Roltgen et al. out of Stanford. And, and on the left, you see mRNA persisting in lymph nodes for at least two months. And then on the right, the little brown dots. And, and this is what we look at under the microscope. These are all cells. You, you see up to 60 days later, there's still spike protein being produced. Um, we'll jump uh, uh, sl- uh, slide forward. Is, is that there. new info, Dr. Cole? Cal- is that is that new information? That that sounds new. No, unfortunately, no. I mean, this came out last year, and and there's uh, several studies showing the persistence of circulating spike protein. There was one that came out of Harvard on myocarditis, showing that the kiddos that got myocarditis had circulating spike compared to those who didn't get myocarditis. Six um, months. Six months is a new number to me. I, I had not heard six months. It was 60 days. I'm sorry. That was 60 days. And and, and at 60 days, she ah, took that to okay. publication. So, but, and, but they stopped studying it. At six, they stopped studying it at 60 days, if I don't recall, right? Yeah. That's when they stopped. Is, is yeah. that, I mean, I'm getting a little confused, guys. Is, are we talking about the mRNA or the, or the spike? <laughs> Which are we talking about? We're talking post, post-injection. Um, post-injection. So okay. these are post, post-MRNA. 
but, but, but persistence of mRNA or persistence of spike protein? Because mm -hmm. I did hear you say 60 days, yes, two months for the mRNA that. to persist, but but then I thought yes. I heard you said six months for the spike to persist. And that, that was like sort no. of mind blowing to me. Six months. Well, well here's, here's, here's what, okay, I will blow your mind then. Okay, so the mRNA we know okay. persists for at least two months in some patients. So does the spike, or for yeah. 60 days. 60 days in that study, 60 days spike in that study. Dr. Bonsall showed a uh, circulating spike uh, four months later in the Journal of Immunology. Dr. Bruce Patterson has shown circulating spike in uh, non-classical monocytes in the blood up to 15 months later. So we know that spike protein can stay in circulation for over a year. And, and we don't know when the mRNA breaks down. Now, this isn't in every patient. It goes back to Kelly's earlier point. But we don't know who has, because, because of the, the synthetic nature of this RNA, mm -hmm. you know, some people are deficient in the ability to break down RNA to begin with. And it goes back to the same groups you and I were talking about, Drew, obese, diabetic, et cetera, and certain racial groups. Right. So and some patients- Can I, can I just, RNA I want to flush out the, uh, the Patterson's observation, because I'm very familiar with that. What they observed was persistent spike protein in non-classical monocytes in the central nervous system who typically go through a cycle of apoptosis very quickly. And what he's been able to show is that these spike-infected monocytes don't go through that cycle. They stay, they stay whole and they do their inflammatory thing in the CNS and associated with elevated VEGF. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm glad you're familiar with that because that's... I think that's societally the concern in these patients that are suffering long-term, either post-COVID and or post-injection, uh, is the persistence in some of these individuals within certain cell types. And to your point, that chronic inflammation that that induces will lead to the symptomatology that we're trying to resolve. So going to Kelly's uh, question, so now we'll jump forward, let's see, let's jump forward two slides uh, to number six, Caleb. So. Uh, I'll go back one, and then then this one's kind of a teaser because this one's important. So spike protein here on the left, this is uh, heart tissue. All that brown that you see um, is spike protein by a special technique we use in the laboratory. Again, this one's Dr. Burkhart's slide. Um, the brown is spike protein expression. And, and the antibodies we use in the laboratory are like a lock and a key. If it binds and, and locks on, then we use a little glow on the end of that antibody so we can see it under the microscope. So on the left, we have spike protein as an internal control. If it were a viral infection, then the nucleocapsid should light up as well. So it's simple deductive reasoning. If spike is there, nucleocapsid isn't, it's not from an infection. It's because the body's producing spike protein. Now, if we jump to the next one, this, this is highly concerning. This is one I just uh, completed yesterday on a, an individual. And this, this one we'll do more of a, a, a prominent press conference on once the rest of the autopsy is complete. This is the adrenal gland. Your adrenal glands are so critical for so many functions in your body, you know, from your adrenaline to your glucocorticoids to your hormone balance, uh, even to your happy hormones, your metenkeflins, et cetera. This individual, you can see all those brown dots in there. And again, the nucleocapsid was negative, and this was a, a post-vaccine death. And all those brown dots, that spike protein, not only filling the middle of the adrenal gland, but it, it was also in, in the medulla, in the cortex as well. So it was filling the entire adrenal gland. What does this mean? Well, a lot of patients have uh, POT syndrome, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome after COVID, as well as after the injections. Well, this shows that it's absolutely depositing in the adrenal glands. 
And so th this is kind of a newer finding that I wanted to bring out here because so many patients are, are going through that, that post-COVID or that post-injection challenge of blood pressure regulation, of fatigue, et cetera. And so this one, I mean, hit me over the head when I saw this one yesterday. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at the amount of spike protein within the adrenal gland. And not, not just in one area of the adrenal, but distributed throughout. And, and if, um, you know, if we take a step back, it, again, it explains some of the, the clinical manifestation that we need to be trying to address. Number one, can we neutralize the spike in these patients that are persisting with spike expression? Number two, um, can we stop doing this to people? <laughs> you know, it, it's causing harms that we didn't study beforehand. And, and again, good medicine, it doesn't matter if it's effective, if, we, if it's not safe. And we're finding so many findings through the tissues. And as Kelly said, the cells are objective. That, that's, that's what I like about pathology. It's here's the observation. Here, the cells don't lie. It's either present or not present. It's binding or not binding. And these cells are expressing it. And so we know from a pathophysiologic mechanism, the cells are expressing spike protein. And that lipid nanoparticle, the, the adrenal gland is really fatty. And so when we were discussing before, Drew, the, the lipid nanoparticle honing to wherever it's going to hone to, it likes to hone to fatty tissues. And the adrenal gland uh, has ACE2 receptors, but it's also a, a fatty type tissue. So here we can see a manifestation of it fusing, putting its gene product in. And now these cells that shouldn't be making a foreign protein, making a foreign protein, and, and think of like Addison's crisis. That's when somebody's you know, blood pressure will drop because you don't have the appropriate hormones to keep tone in your blood vessels, can cause low blood sugar very quickly as well, can cause uh, a, a dump in your potassium and your potassium goes low as well. And now, even if there's no inflammation in the heart, if your adrenal gland isn't functioning properly, that could lead to an arrhythmia because of, of potassium insufficiency as well. So this is one new mechanism that just literally came to me yesterday as... I was looking through slides and, you know, I have in the background here about a kajillion more to look at and those will, uh, what, what part of the adrenal over. gland are they, is it, is it showing in all parts of the adrenal? So you're getting oh, mineral corticoid yeah. as well as right. corticoid. Yeah. 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 The medulla and the cortex as well as, what are the, um, yeah, go ahead. As, no, as you say, one of the things that, that, that you said, Ryan, that I really, you know, uh, I've been really focusing recently as much as i would love to do a and i told you so victory lap right now based on the way i've been treated and you've been treated during this there's no time for that um and we have got to focus on how to fix what has been done to these people you just used the word i think um used a different word than i've said yeah i i've been figuring saying how can we remove these spike proteins there's got to be a way um to, to diffuse them or to remove them. I don't know how, you know, do we electrophoresis them out? Do we chelate them out? How, how do you get rid of them? Or, and, or how do we turn off this mRNA? I'm not an mRNA scientist. I, I don't know a lot about how it gets turned on, but if it got turned on, maybe there's a way to turn it off. Um, but to me, these are the things that we as scientists need to be focusing on. How do we get rid of this uh, spike protein, and how do we stop people from producing more of it? Yeah, and there are plenty of groups out there looking at this, and there's you know plenty of claims out there, and you know I, I think some uh, appear to be useful and successful to a degree. I've seen a lot of patients do quite well. Um, one of the primary ways that 
I, I like with the FLCCC approach is autophagy and that that you induce through intermittent fasting and intermittent fast is 16 hours. And then you cause some of these cells that are carrying um, atypical proteins or these cells that are weakened to die off so you can grow new healthy cells. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a simple way is just uh, cutting caloric consumption several times a week for 16 hours a day. Uh, I do that some intentionally about four or five days a week, accidentally one or two days a week. But, but you know, that's one amazing way to maintain health. Um, the 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 real answer is we don't know, and this is where I wish the studies were done to show when does the spike protein stop being produced, and when does the mRNA break down? And and these are tissue studies that it should have done been done in mammals to say, hey, this this pseudouracil within this synthetic mRNA, we don't know the answer. That would be. Gosh, the easiest study to do at a you know any large lab, university level, et cetera, and should be done because people need this answer. The, the, the answer to the question is, I know plenty of things that are useful, certain drugs that shall not be named, as 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 you know, we like to say, <laughs> that do have spike inhibitory effects. The the mRNA question is an unanswered question. I don't know. Um, before before the clock runs down, there's something else that I really want to pick your brain about. Um, we've talked a lot about uh, cardiac injury, and certainly that's very important. We've talked a lot about autoimmune issues and increases in cancer rates. One thing that I don't think has gotten enough attention in the mainstream so far are the neurologic or psychologic, you know, neuropsychiatric mm. issues. What let's let's switch for a little bit and talk about. We know based on DMED, the Defense Military Epidemiology Database, and from claims that there's a significant increase in new onset seizures. We're seeing people complaining of this brain fog, the persistent brain fog, different neurologic uh, problems. Let's talk again at the cellular level from what you're saying, the pathology. What are you seeing in brain tissue that could potentially explain some of these things? All right, number one, I'm gonna have Caleb jump to slide number eight. This is a case that I received recently of a deceased individual, unfortunately. The, the spike protein has the ability to fold in interesting ways. So certainly we have that amyloid question and amyloid, a certain type of amyloids associated with Alzheimer's. I have a colleague in California runs memory care clinic after the shots rolled out. She saw a massive decline in function within her elderly patients. Now, this one that I'm showing right here, Dr. Montagnier, the Nobel Prize winner, he had uh, identified 26 cases post-vaccine of spongiform encephalopathy. People are familiar with the term mad cow disease. This is a case, all those white holes that you see, that's why they call it spongiform. It looks like a sponge. So this is an individual who unfortunately, you know, passed away shortly after his third shot and his brain was Swiss cheese and not all of it, but good parts of it. And you can't have cellular function if the cells are blown apart. Now, if we'll jump to slide 10, Here on the left, this is a a single case studied by Dr. Moores on the left that showed, again, like Dr. Drew mentions, inflammation of the vessels, all that brown on that little tube on the left, that spike protein. Then you see leaking out from that vessel, little brown dots into the surrounding brain tissue. Now on the right-hand side, these are slides I've completed. These are from um, that same patient that I was showing you with the the sponge-like pattern in the brain. Those brown dots in the middle, those are neurons, and those neurons are being rimmed with spike protein. 
And so we know the spike protein crosses the blood-brain barrier, the S1 fragment. We know that the lipid nanoparticle crosses the blood-brain barrier. So unfortunately, that's a very protected space in the body. It's an immune-protected site. So to be uh, to, to see the pattern of a protein that doesn't belong in the brain crossing the blood-brain barrier, um, that can easily explain in many of these individuals some of these uh, persistent uh, psychiatric conditions. And even going back to the adrenal gland, uh, the, 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 the natural opioid your body makes, the metenkephalins, that's one of your happy hormones and mood, mood affecting as well. So it, it's multifactorial and multi-organs. And so Unfortunately, we do see deposition of spike protein in the brain tissues. And this is highly concerning because now you have to consider what medications can we get in there to counter those effects. And, and neural tissue, yes, it can regrow. There are certain medications that can regrow synapses and whatnot. And whatnot. Ketamine, interestingly, is one of those. Um, but it, it's difficult to say what are, what are the long-term outcomes in these individuals because not everything is going to get to the tissues you're trying to treat, especially in these neuroprotected sites. Now, not only are we seeing it in the brain, but I, we're I, seeing it in peripheral nerves. We're seeing it in peripheral nerves as well. I have a couple, of, couple of questions. I, I, I'm not clear where the spike protein is getting deposited. Is it in the myelin or is it in the cell wall of the neurons? Which is such an odd yes, place. I, I don't can't think of any other illness that it's getting into the neuronal cell wall per se, uh, without destroying the cell at least. Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing. So on the right hand side of this image, those larger cells, those are the neurons themselves. In the uh, periphery, we do see uh, both myelin destruction and. In some of the patterns, like on the one on the photo on the left, you will see in in the um, my, well in the white matter as well. But yeah, so the spike protein is is distributing everywhere because the brain is so vascular that all the microcapillaries are are you know you have to get oxygen to all these neuronal cells, and so the microcapillaries is where it's leaking through into the surrounding white matter as well as into the neurons. So. It, the the short answer is yes and yes. It's it's getting into and and it goes back to the point that that charged lipid nanoparticle loves to hone to fatty tissues and the brain. Again, if someone calls you a fathead, it's a compliment, you know. Because <laughs> I, but I would expect that to go. But I expect that to go to still go to myelin. Myelin is a little fattier than the cell wall. I mean, it's it's it really just it does. You know, it's very lipophilic. But it's not going to the myelin. It's going to the lipid bilayer. It's weird. It's going to both. It's going to both, and that's why we're seeing a lot of yeah. patients with uh, with neuropathies uh, post injection right. and, and long COVID. That spike protein homes and, there okay. again; it causes an autoimmune attack against those tissues. And what I think is interesting is that we've been focusing on things like these neuropathies, new onset seizures, uh, different neurologic uh, sequelae. But my question is really, what number are we not attributing? What number of neuropsychiatric changes, new onset depression, new onset psychosis, um, those sorts of things that might actually if you, when you look at this slide, uh, be related to these vaccines and to the deposition of spike protein. Um, you know, everyone's happy to say that, you know, all of the substance abuse and depression and anxiety is related to the lockdown. And there's no question the lockdowns uh, contributed uh, to that. But what, what component of this might be actually attributable to, to vaccine injury? 
in in the 1920s yes. the the dr dr menninger himself felt that everything he was seeing the vast majority of what he was seeing in the early 1920s was from the influenza from 1918 and and his the spectrum Absolutely. of psychiatric disorder was vast well and it's it's amazing you can't find what you don't look for i say that many a time right. and if we're not looking we'll never find it and so to to honor those who have unfortunately passed, be it post-COVID, be it post-vaccine injury, we should be studying those tissues. This should be a primary push of medical establishment based on what we've experienced for three years. This is, I'm not the only guy in the world with curiosity, but I, I, I have a handful of pathology colleagues around the world that are looking into these mechanisms, you know, and I quote them here because they're esteemed colleagues. I want to see, the funding go into getting the answers because Kelly brings up a great question and the denialism of, oh gosh, there's no such thing as vaccine injury. Well, gosh, I'm showing it right here. And, and people don't have to believe me, but the cells, they're screaming at me and they're looking at, looking at us in the face and saying, well, here's the spike protein, here's inflammation. And then it goes to Kelly's clinical question of now we're seeing certain manifestations. And, and I love that you bring up that uh, historic anecdote about the observations after other large pandemics, because how much of, you know, take, take for example, neurosyphilis. Think of the behavioral changes we see when a pathogen affects mm -hmm. the brain right. in neurosyphilis or, or neuro-Lyme disease, neuroborreliosis, et cetera. There's so many pathogens that can affect neural tissue. And we often just describe it to one thing or, 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 or to nothing. But gosh, we sure have a smoking gun right now. And it would be behoove the medical establishment to bring this into consideration when they're making that differential diagnosis on a patient. The, the other big um, group of our uh, bucket of, of uh, diagnoses or, or adverse events, Ryan, I would say, are those that fall under the autoimmune ones. And that, in my mind, mm -hmm. includes uh, the increased risk of cancer, given the role the immune system plays there. We know from the most recent studies, and it's not just one or two, uh, that people who have been multiply vaccinated actually appear to have a significantly higher risk of contracting COVID. We know that there's some uh, clear immune suppression to those people who have been multiply vaccinated. Let's talk about that that group of, uh, of illnesses or diseases that would fall uh, under autoimmune related things and where you where you're seeing that. Yeah, so first let's jump to the patients getting infected over and over again. So uh, I'll have Caleb jump to slide number 21 real quick. Um, everybody hears about antibodies and, and really a good immune response isn't just antibodies. Uh, a good immune response is a good T cell response. So we, we hear about, oh gosh, I have IgG, I recovered from COVID, or gosh, I have immunity from my vaccine, I, I formed IgG. Well, you, you form a lot of different types of antibody and genes get turned on and off and on and off to make certain types of antibodies. Your acute one is IgM. There's an IgD that stays stuck to the B cells, the plasma cells that make your antibodies. There's one in your uh, mucosa, your secretory IgA, which the shots really don't make a do a good job. If, if you're trying to prevent a respiratory infection, you want a lot of secretory um, IgA. And these shots are being put in the body, not into the mucosa. So you don't end up making a lot of secretory IgA. But the one of concern here is IgG4. This is so, so in your IgGs, you have one, two, three, four. One and, and three are your inflammatory ones that will induce like binding to a pathogen and making your body gobble it up. So it basically makes makes the infected cell or the virus itself yummy 
it make it makes it yummy so that your body will come in and clear it out. Now, IgG4 and IgG2 are actually negative inflammatory. IgG4, we think of in allergies. And so if I want you to be immune to, say, a peanut allergen or or whatever you're allergic to, you know, a kiddo is allergic to cats or dogs. I had allergy shots as a kid. I was allergic to the world. And you give a little bit of protein over time, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then your IgG4 against that protein goes up and it, it, it blunts the immune response. So your immune system says, you know, I'm just not going to hyperreact to that anymore. That's wonderful if it's an allergy. It's horrible if it's a pathogen. Now, there was a study by Dr. Arang in Science um, in December of 22 that showed, unfortunately, after uh, two and even worse after three Pfizer shots, uh, this amount of IgG4 goes up. Well, what does that mean? Now you tolerate the protein, the spike protein. So in this category, now instead of being able to recognize it and fight it off, your body says, yeah, I'm just going to ignore it. And then Dr. Burra in Germany uh, looked at the Moderna shots and after two shots found the same thing. Now, what was interesting is in the first study, 210 days after two shots, the IgG4 was still elevated. After the third shot, 180 days later, it was still elevated. So what, what we're seeing is a tolerance to a pathogen. That makes one potentially a sitting duck for other coronaviruses in the future. And if we go to the next slide, please, Caleb, it's not as though we can't see this clinically. This is from the Cleveland Clinic. The more shots you get, the more COVID you get, period. And that's because of immune suppression. So you see that top line, those are patients that got three or more shots. The next line down was three shots. The next line down was, um, I think two, I can't quite see it, but anyway, you can see the pattern. The upper lines are the people with more shots, and those are people that got more COVID. Now, this was a 51,000 patient study. That, that's not a small study. And so you can see this. So anywhere from two to four times more risk of getting COVID after having these injections. And the more injections you get, the more immune suppressed you are. IgG4 is one of the reasons for that mechanism. Now, the other thing, you know, you brought up, Kelly, and we can drop the slides now. Um, the other thing you brought up, importantly, is... Uh, cancer mechanisms. And there's so many here that, you know, it would be an entire show just, just alone on the mechanisms, unfortunately, there. But what we're seeing is some immune suppression, and it's persistent immune suppression, especially the more shots you get, the more we're seeing in the laboratory findings, lower T-cell counts, lower CD4 counts, lower killer uh, T-cell counts. Now, this IgG4, yes, it's related to cancer as well. Now, this was spike-specific in this study, so I'm not going to make any grand leaps or assumptions there per se, but it didn't look at IgG4 across the board in other B-cell types. So that's another thing that should be studied absolutely because we know in cancer patients, IgG4 is increased and then the ability of the body to say, gosh, you know, I'm going to fight off this cancer. The cells say, no, nah, we're just going to recognize it as self and we're not going to attack it. So it, it is unfortunate. And then the BEARS data bear out that there's absolutely an increase of cancer reporting compared to all other vaccines combined after the rollout of these and, and, you know, the, T, the T-cell repair mechanisms um, are inhibited, DNA repair mechanisms are inhibited, the mitochondria are destroyed and decreased, hypoxia is one of the mechanisms of, of cancer growth, et cetera. So there's so many pathways, unfortunately, everywhere I go in the world, I mean, the amount of reporting I get from oncologists, radiologists, radiation oncologists, you name it the cohorts, the young patients that they've never seen cancer in before, 
again, we could we could if we could open up our our national databases, if we had access, it'd be a simple study. Here's the age cohort, every decile, and you look at the type of cancer. We we you know I code every day when I make a diagnosis, and ICD-10 goes in and says. Here's the cancer. Here's the age, and the, and these databases exist. These should be wide open to the public, because what has changed in the recent couple of years? Obviously, the elephant in the room. And, and to be clear, as you said, quick this second. is not Kelly. This just is one one quick one quick one quick second coming off the spaces. Uh, if you guys if people are wanting to see the slides that we're we're talking about, I think people that are on Twitter Spaces realize you can watch it. Uh, on my Twitter feed at, at, at Dr. Drew, also at my YouTube channel, uh, also drdrew.tv. You can, we're, we're streaming live now and you can uh, watch the program later if you wish. Sorry, Kelly. Yes, and uh, if, if they're listening no. to this on the podcast, they can actually get all of this stuff if they just go to drdrew.com slash 2-1-2023. So it's basically today's date, drdrew.com slash today's date. You get the slides. I Kelly, sorry. Thanks. What I was going to say, I was going to say, Ryan, just to to uh, amplify what you're saying about these cancers. Not only are we seeing new onset cancers, very aggressive cancers in far younger age groups, so uh, aggressive, invasive colorectal cancers in people in their 30s, invasive melanomas in people uh, in their in their teens and 20s, lymphomas, leukemias, uh, melanoma, uh, excuse me, uh, myelomas, very unusual cancers in young people. But we also are seeing resurgence of cancers that had long deemed yeah. to be in remission. People who had had a breast cancer, for example, you know, go ahead. Yeah. That's a great point. Before you answer, before you answer, are, are, are we are we seeing it? I, I can't get the data. I mean, when we've always seen cancers that blossom all of a sudden, I can't get no. the sudden death data. I can't get the blossoming cancer data. What? Why is this so obscure? It's the simplest question in the world, and it, and to ask it is somehow problematic. That's that's a great point, Doctor Drew. I mean, why can't we just simply have transparency and data? Um, I have nothing to hide here. I don't have all the answers. I'm asking a lot of questions. I'm certainly seeing patterns. I'm asking my colleagues within the profession, gosh, the techniques I'm doing, uh, these aren't proprietary to me. These are widely available. Why aren't my colleagues doing this? Please do it. Please do it. Around the world, I have other colleagues doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm imploring uh, for transparency and data. So weird. We, this is humanity at stake. This this is humanity. This is this is why we went into medicine to help people, not to harm people. So if there's a signal, gosh, let's make that signal transparent. Make it manifest. Let's answer the honest question, whether we like the answer or not. Let's ask the question. But let's let's where are the agencies? Why why are they covering something up? I don't, I'm not saying they are or aren't, but it sure seems like you said it. it these are. It's not just our database, but other countries uh, have similar databases in terms of health tracking. And the, this is the job of our CDC, morbidity and mortality tracking. They're supposed to right. be doing this. This is what we pay them to do. And I well, want to jump. We certainly, quick, we certainly oh. had, we certainly had Dr. Teresa Long on with the uh, with the defense military uh, database, and she's clearly seeing, as I said, both increase in those cancers in young people and resurgence. So go ahead. Sorry. 
Yeah, and, and I get criticized for the, you know, early on, I was the first one in the world to point it out when I started seeing the pattern. And, you know, I said it was X, X percent. It wasn't quite that. I said the 20 fold. And I went back and looked at my database. It was only a five fold, but still it was a five fold increase in certain types of cancer. I'm like, whoa. So, uh, you know, I self-corrected on that one. Uh, if you jump to the slide number 13 real quick, Caleb, um, again, here's, here's again a question that needs to be answered. And, and this is uh, going to your question of myelomas and, and different lymphoid type cancer. So this is gastric mm-hmm. tissue, Dr. Park slide again out of Germany. And, and if you go to the next one now, that's all that blue, those are cancer cells. What's inside of every cancer cell? Spike protein. So again, this begs the question, yeah, yeah, exactly. What? I know. Every B cell there that's malignant has spike protein in it. And so this begs the question, why aren't my colleagues doing these same stains on unexpected cancers in young individual, any individual that has an unexpected cancer? And Kelly brought up a great point. As I travel and lecture and teach, countless doctors say, gosh, I had a patient five years, 10 years in remission. Their cancer stage four now. They were they were clear, right. and all of a sudden their cancer right. is back, and that goes those immune mechanisms keeping cancers in check for a lifetime. And all of us have you know a few atypical cells every day, and our immune system just goes and clears them out. That's the job of surveillance of, of our natural killer cells to poke a hole in atypical cells, throw a hand grenade in, blow them up, get get rid of them. But what we're finding is these unusual cancers in unusual age groups and aggressive ones, and. And there are mechanisms to explain why, but we should still go back to Dr. Drew's question. I agree with him a thousand percent. Open up the data, just share the data, tell the truth so we can do something for the patient. And so we can figure out all these mechanisms so we can prevent harm. First, do no harm. Primum no nocere, the oath we all took. Or help people make a, 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 a choice, you know, the informed choice. That's the part that's eating me up. I, I can't, informed consent is off the table if we don't have the data. Right. And and these are these are simple these are simple laboratory findings. This is giving informed consent. Here's some risks. Here's some obviously post injection and post covid. I'm not I'm not going to, you know, tease it out into one or the other, but I'm seeing a lot post injection only as well, but at the same time informed consent. And how do you give informed consent if you don't explain all of these potential right. harms to the patient? Then it's not informed consent. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that's I, 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 kind of we're, a profession that I'm so proud to be a part of to just really beg our colleagues to go back to that curiosity in addition to the caring or bring back both caring and curiosity. We are sort of running out of time here. Kelly, is there any last minute uh, wrap or questions? or No, no as only always, that, that lays I, down the gauntlet I so- for us. I so appreciate you being here. Uh, it's it's why we have this platform because we are trying to return not only robust debate but uh, intellectual curiosity and and the kinds of discussions that uh, before this COVID debacle were really the cornerstone of medicine. I can tell you, in all of my years, I've been a practicing physician more than thirty years. I uh, I called hundreds and hundreds of times on my colleagues for second opinions, for advice, uh, for for their two cents. I never once called the CDC, 
I never once called the FDA. <laughs> or the FDA. I never once or the called FDA. the FDA. No, no, never, no. Never called the FDA. Never no, called the never. NIH. Never, not once. So uh, it, it, all of a sudden we have agencies that are not only just opining, but they are directing this show. And that's not right. I rely on my colleagues. I yep. rely on my own training. Uh, I rely on the science. I don't need federal agencies telling me how to do my job. Amen. That is and, a and to that spe point, spectacular that's, point. Yeah. And consensus is never the way science is done. And that's why we bring in those second and third opinions, because a critical thinking doctor that may be seeing something that none of us is thinking about may have that answer for that patient. And so this is why it's so important to ask these questions and, and not, not live in fear, but live with a, a courageous curiosity. Ask the question. I always reserve the right to be wrong. Hey, you have better data, please bring it so I can learn. And I, I, I would hope that our colleagues would act in that same manner. And on behalf of the patient, this isn't about anybody's ego. I, you know, some people MD means minor deity. To me, it means make a difference. So I, I think that's what we need to get back to is making a difference. And we do well, tend to get, you, you know, as a profession, we do get into group think a little bit. And so the outside the box thinkers are the ones we look to to break, you know, shake that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And you are. Well, I hope you'll come back. Thank you both for the opportunity Yeah, both of you. And well, I'm you looking for Kelly. Thank you. Well, thank you for being you here, bet. truly. I know how busy you are, and we look forward to having you back for Ryan Cole Part 3. Uh, hopefully, with some, hopefully, we will, by that point, have come up with some, uh, maybe some fixes, some ways to actually offer some, some relief to people who have been harmed both by the, by the vaccines and uh, who are still suffering from, uh, from long effects of the virus. So, blessings. Thank you for being here. And Thank you, Dr. Cole. And uh, Kelly, I know you have to run possibly too, so thank you as well. Uh, and we will be back with uh, Dr. Kelly Victory next Wednesday with uh, Senator Ron Johnson, so that should be interesting. And uh, apologies, you know, you, which you're getting us jumping on each other here is there, there are three different delays going on and we're trying to time each other so we don't step on each other. And what happens when you step, you don't hear the other person, you stop what you're saying, and you saw the little Three Stooges thing we got into for a minute there. But that's... Uh, in the nature of the beast here. So uh, we appreciate you bearing with it when we have little delay issues. Jeff Deese in here from the Mises Institute, which uh, we're going to talk a little uh, Keynesian, or I think he's going to talk a little anti-Keynesian kind of thinking. Michael Schellenberger in on Monday and uh, Wednesday, Senator Oh, that's Ron Tuesday. Johnson. Tuesday, I beg your pardon. Tuesday, February 7th. Uh, Dave Rubin coming in on the 13th. Uh, Jessica Rose, Dr. Kelly got uh, her to come in on the 15th. And then Brooke Jan Jackson, I beg your pardon, Brooke Jackson on the 22nd. Lots of interesting ideas. The, the, the process continues to unfold as more and more sort of insight slowly comes to bear. Um, I, I'm still swimming in a bit of confusion about a few topics. Um, and I can just imagine how tough it is for the average person to know what decisions to make and how to make them. And, you know, it, it's, it is... It is challenging. I, I, really... I actually understood what you guys were talking about today. Wow, you're coming along nicely. No, I mean, you. It, last time I was kind of, it was a little over my head, but this time I was, I was very well. You were kind of ready first. for it. I, I, first I think episode. the first episode. If you yeah. haven't seen the first episode, you should see it. But we had a million views. It, it really was well received. But, um. It's starting to make sense to me. Good. A little bit. Okay, good. But I do intermittent fasting. 
Okay, good. And I, I'm so glad that that's what helps get the, so and taking care of your health, obviously, but um, that was interesting. It is interesting. Well, we appreciate you all being here, those of you on Twitter Spaces, of course, those of you on the Restream and Rumble Rants, we were watching you. And in fact, Susan, you didn't see this, but I... Uh, was so engaged over at the restream. I heard. I, what, I didn't come back on Where the show. were you? I was at my was head so of my computer. <laughs> so, you, you can go back and I watch Susan. Off they were probably so worried you had a stroke or something. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were all trying to get his attention, but he didn't have his headphones in, so we couldn't get his attention anyway. Right. I couldn't hear anything. And it, it, to me, it sounded like the guy, you know, one of those, the, the, the guy that was just been talking a few seconds earlier on the ad. Uh, so, Caleb, anything from your perspective? No, I just, I, I always love when Dr. Cole comes on because he explains these things yeah. so well and so patiently that it's, I, I can be running yeah. all of these controls and I can still learn something and understand what he's saying. I, I really appreciate when he comes on the show. Right, Good. right. Good. It doesn't go over your head. Uh, then, the nerdier, the better though. That's what I, I know. that's my motto. We can, <laughs> we can, we can, we can go further if you want to. Well, we I, I think people are really listening like, you know, people come on the restream and, you know, people come and go, but I think people really want to hear the message and they're getting, you know, educated. It's sort of like taking a class, you yeah. know, you, yeah. you really learn something. Yeah. Good. And, uh, again, my position remains, uh, people are always astonished, but it remains that I still vaccinate my elderly patients. I'm convinced they have had a significant benefit from it. I've just been walking getting a couple of people in very complex medical situations through COVID and the fact that they were fully vaxxed uh, helped the situation, trust me, because I was unable to use Paxlovid or Molnupiravir because of the complexity of the situation medically. Uh, and so I, I haven't seen any side effects in elderly patients. I've seen lots of stuff in younger patients, which is why I've been concerned about it and been wanting to talk to all these people that have ideas about it to see if we can figure out what is going on. But my greatest source of frustration is something Dr. Cole and I just talked about a few moments ago, which is we don't have the data. It's not, it's, 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 the data does not appear transparent. It's too there, appears soon. To, uh, there appears to be something, uh, just ask a simple question. We need a couple of simple questions asked and no one has done, you know, the only way, as he said, if, if you don't look, you can't find. And if you're not asking a question, you don't know what you're looking at. You have to come at it with a question. A question like, are there increase in sudden death in 35-year-olds? Are there increase in sudden recurrences at stage four of remission in cancers in 75-year-olds? Is, is this happening? Yes or no? And uh, I, I've not seen anybody asking questions like that. It is deeply, deeply concerning to me. So in the meantime, we'll keep uh, fishing around, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. And as Kelly said, with the one database we do have is the one through the military because it's so carefully kept. And um, I'm blanking on the name. Teresa Long uh, does see some of this there. So that is what you call a signal. We need a bigger study on that. All right, everybody, we'll see you tomorrow with uh, Mr. Deist. I think he pronounced his name, uh, 3 o'clock Pacific time. Till then, mahalo. Ta-ta. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. 
If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 